Now let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Luke's Gospel, the fifth chapter, as we work our way through Luke, chapter 5, the first 11 verses. If you are a visitor here, we our approach to preaching is to expound the text because the authority is in the text. And ordinarily, we follow what is called Lectio Continua preaching. We preach through books of the Bible. There are some exceptions to that, but generally we do that. We begin to see the unity of the Bible in that way. So we're not here to entertain. We're here to hear the Word of God and to be instructed from His Word. And that the kerugma, that the gospel, will be lodged in our hearts is always our prayer as we come to his word. So Luke chapter 5, will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. Only your Spirit can apply this word which is given by divine inspiration to our hearts. May the Holy Spirit help us to see from this text something of the burning holiness of our God. Yes, even our incarnate Lord. And may the Holy Spirit cause the lost to come to see themselves as hopeless and helpless without the Redeemer. And may those of us who have trusted in you, your people, your church gathered, know even more deeply the worth, the sustenance, the greatness, the majesty of our Savior and his gospel to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, following our Lord Jesus as his disciple requires first a deep sense of humility before his majesty. And I think that is the primary thing that we learn from the text that we will be looking at this morning. Now, as we come to this text, Jesus was teaching the crowd who came to hear God's word from from him. He was teaching by the Lake of Gennesaret, which of course is the Sea of Galilee. It's about eight miles long, about 14 miles wide. And in the time of this narrative, there would have been fishing villages and fishing hovels all around the lake. The crowd is pressing in on Jesus to be near him and to hear his word, and he looks for a little relief. And seeing two boats by the lake where the fishermen were away washing and mending their nets, Jesus got into one of the boats. The boat was owned by Simon Peter, and Jesus asked Peter to cast off a bit from the shore. These boats would have been 20 to 30 feet in length, so don't think that uh, Jesus is in some sort of dinghy. From there, Jesus taught the crowd. And Alfred Plummer, in his wonderful old commentary on Luke, says arrestingly, Christ uses Peter's boat as a pulpit, whence to throw the net of the gospel over his hearers. Ah, it's the use of Peter's boat. There's more to this than meets the eye. Now, after he finished his teaching, we see, first of all, the call to catch fish the call to catch fish. Jesus commands Peter and his associates to cast off and fish. He specifically says to Simon, that is Peter, in verse 4, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, ordinarily, carpenters' sons don't tell professional fishermen how to fish. As minister of the word, I don't tell electricians how to run wire or plumbers how to join joints, or how lawyers are to argue their cases, or how medical doctors are to treat diseases. So a carpenter's son tells Peter, the professional fisherman, how to fish. But if the carpenter's adopted son is more fundamentally God's own son, if he is the one who created the fish... Well, that's another thing, is it not? So there's a command to catch fish. Followed by, secondly, the response of faith. The response of faith. There must have been a tremendous authority in Jesus' person and in his words that Peter responds by doing what Jesus told him to do. Notice verse 5. Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Jesus will show Peter and all of us who have eyes to see his divine omnipotence, his divine omniscience, his ability to guide, his ability to provide for his people, and something very important indeed about Peter's call to mission that also is the church's call to mission. So epistata, master, even though we have copiasantes, it's an aorist participle from the verb copiao, which means to toil to the point of weariness. So master, even though we have toiled all night to the point of weariness, catching nothing at all, Peter responds in faith at Jesus' word. How do you respond in faith to Jesus' word? 
even when you don't know where it will lead you or how it might apply or what he wants you to do as things unfold or how that word has an application to your particular setting in life. Well, they cast their great nets, and verse 6 says, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. What abundance. Their nets were beginning to tear, literally to rip. Now imagine that you were a reporter on the shore. And there you are with your microphone and you have the TV cameras behind you. Of course, we're being a bit anachronistic here, you understand. But you report, Jesus told Peter and his associates to fish even though they had toiled to weariness all night. We, we now are live on camera at the Sea of Galilee. And there, look at that. Peter and his crew are signaling to their partners in another boat to come and help them. The boats are filling up with the catch. It looks as if the boats are about to sink with the weight of the fish that they have caught. And just look at their frantic efforts to save their fish. Now, look, both boats are filled to the brim and they're about to sink. Folks, you're seeing it live here on the Jerusalem News. Well, that's really what happened, isn't it? Verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. You see, faith simply acts upon the word of Christ. You leave the results in his hands. But the Lord always promises that he will bring abundance, not always materially, but abundance of communion with him and knowledge of him in whatever situation we face. But Peter, even though he had toiled all night with the others, even though never has a catch been seen as this one, never have they seen boats filled with fish so they are about to sink. Peter is no longer concerned with fish. There's a conclusion to draw. If Jesus can say, do this and this is what happens, then who is he? And so we see thirdly, the confession of sin and confession of Christ, and they go together. It would not take much for one to intuit. This man knew just when to fish. This man knew just where to tell us to fish. Maybe this man even called the fish around our boats and around our nets to be caught. This man shows supernatural knowledge He shows supernatural ability to guide. He shows a supernatural ability to provide. This man is not like me. There's something different about this man. Simon Peter, which is a unique combination in Luke, by the way, Simon Peter, fell to Jesus' knees. The issue of the fish is no longer important. Who Jesus is is the only issue now. And when a sinner sees his sin, the only issue is, who is Jesus? And how does it apply to my life to know that? So he knows that he's in the presence of holiness. Peter fell to Jesus' knees, evidently right in the midst of the fish. He didn't seem to care. He kneels right there in the boat, on the fish evidently, And we read in verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In verse 9, Williams' translation, 
For at the hall of fish that they had made, bewildering amazement had seized him and all his men, as well as James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Bewildering amazement had seized them. Well, no wonder. He senses that God is present. He bows down. Depart from me because I am a sinful man. It's like Isaiah in the sixth chapter, seeing the Lord high and exalted, and he cries out, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Yet with mine eyes have I seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And it's only after Isaiah sees something of the God's holiness that he receives his call and that he becomes an effective follower of the Lord. The same with Peter. Peter confesses his sin. He confesses Christ's lordship also. Does Peter know what that lordship means? Only faintly, but he will come to understand. Someone has written, Jesus will take the faith and humble attitude exhibited in Peter and turn them into a call to serve. And indeed, that's what happens. But it's important that we do not put the worst construction on Peter's words. It's not the prayer of the ungodly man who says, Depart from me because I cannot stand you. Depart from me because I do not want to know you. Depart from me because I want no fellowship with you. Depart from me because I have no desire to part with my sin. It's not that kind of prayer at all. It's the prayer of a heart that knows God and senses his own unworthiness. A sense of who Christ is makes Peter to be an humble man. Peter is sensing that he needs a mediator. Now, Peter wouldn't have put it in that language, but that's what he's sensing, that he needs a mediator. And the mediator is standing right before him. So don't miss the importance of the portion of verse 10, if you'll look at it, that says, do not be afraid. Well, how can I not be afraid? How can I not be afraid if I am a sinful man in the presence of holiness? How can I not be afraid if I am a sinful man and there the incarnate God is right before me? How can you not be afraid when God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. How can you not be afraid? And the assurance, do not be afraid, is based upon something that Peter could not have dreamt at that moment. The assurance that comes from the lips of Jesus to Peter is based on something that is far beyond his ability at this point even to comprehend. And what is that? The word of assurance in view of Peter's sense of sin is the provision of the cross to which Jesus will go. Jesus will go to the cross and there satisfy the divine wrath He will die as a substitute in Peter's place and in the place of all of his people. And the assurance that comes from Christ to Peter is based on the efficacy of the purposed cross. 
Everyone who is saved before the cross is saved nonetheless through the cross that was purposed. And the only way that assurance of faith can come to Peter is because there was a cross that was purposed in which the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the justice of God would be met so that grace and forgiveness and assurance of faith could be granted to Peter and to those of us who have come to know Jesus by faith. What about you? You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust him, and yet you have a recognition of the depth of your sin. You stop short of understanding how the cross applies when we lack the very assurance that the cross is intended to bring. And so the Belgic Confession says in beautiful words, Reformation Confession, our hearts would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Hear that again. Our hearts would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Do you need this morning to hear once again, do not be afraid? I quoted that Reformation confession. That was the great issue, you know, for the Protestant reformers. Because in Roman Catholicism then and now, there is no assurance of faith. You cannot be assured except in rare instances through special revelation. You cannot be assured. You live your life without assurance of faith. That pastoral cruelty is addressed by this text and others, by the simple word of Jesus to all of his people, do not be afraid. Assurance of faith should be the norm for your life. How? How? Jesus says to you, in essence, the merit of my blood shed on the cross speaks for you. Immerse your sins in Jesus' blood. Immerse your conscience in Jesus' blood. And you can know assurance of faith. And then we read, of course, in verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Well, they should be. This is how you and I should respond to Christ. Peter was overwhelmed by the person and grace of Christ. Are you overwhelmed by the person and grace of Christ? Geldenheis, who's one of the commentators on Luke that I think a lot of, thinks that Peter had already begun to follow Christ and had already begun to leave that calling and has already returned to his nets. You'll remember in John chapter 1 that there's that early meeting and calling of Peter, and now we see him out here pursuing his profession. Geldenheis says, The realization of sin in Peter's case may perhaps have to be attributed to the fact that after he had previously begun to follow Jesus, he had again left him and returned to his old profession, and that he had now come to a profound realization of the foolish sinfulness of his former half-heartedness. If Geldenheis is right, 
that Peter had been called, but already had begun to wander, and now receives that call back again. May the word work in some heart to do that this morning. Someone here, this is a message for you. Called by divine grace indeed, kept by him, but your heart prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Already you have begun to wander from that call that has come to you to know Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, to be his disciple, his faithful follower, and to speak a word for his name. Someone here needs to be called back from that foolish sinfulness and half-heartedness that has gripped your heart and gripped your life. And perhaps that's what's happening to Peter in this passage. Well, when we have met Jesus, life will not be the same. It cannot be the same. And so we see fourthly in this text, the call to discipleship. The call to discipleship. Now, Peter's call is explained. He will no longer simply catch fish. No, no. The Lord is calling him to catch people. Anthropus essay Zogron means to catch alive, literally translated, you shall capture men alive. You shall capture men alive. Following Jesus then, they left their boats. It's plural, not just Peter, but it includes James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon and perhaps others. They left their boats their priorities have changed, and the verb that is used here, akolotheo, is the typical word that is used throughout the gospel and other gospels for following Jesus as a disciple. Now that call has come to you also. Jesus has called you to be his disciple, to be his follower. Must you leave your boats to follow Christ? Peter had to. He could no longer fulfill his calling otherwise. But you are not called to be an apostle. Peter is called to be a disciple. This will lead into apostleship. You're not called to that. You are called, however, to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Must you leave your boats? Well, most of us will continue in our present callings when we become Christians. Most of us will not leave our boats, though some of us may, but we will have to leave something behind. What do we leave behind when we come to know Jesus? We leave behind our autonomy. We're no longer laws unto ourselves. We leave behind our sinful directions. We leave behind our old self to become new in Christ. He doesn't call every man to be a preacher all of us to drop our occupations and go to distant lands, though he does call some to do that. But he calls every one of us, he calls every one of us, every disciple, to be thoroughly devoted to him. And in that sense, he calls you and me to leave everything because it all belongs to him. Now here is the challenge of discipleship. Just listen to these verses. Self-denial and cross-bearing, Matthew 16, 24, 
Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Self-renunciation. Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Leaving all for Jesus. Luke 14, 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. Continuing in the word, persevering in faith. John 8, 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. Bearing fruit. John 15, 8, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit so that ye shall be my disciples. In brief, discipleship means following the Savior who paid the price for you on the cross because you are not your own, you are bought with a price. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2, 21, for even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Luke 5.11, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So yes, in a sense, you do leave your boat, don't you? You do leave your op- occupation. That is to say, you leave it in Jesus' hands from now on. You belong to him. You don't belong to yourself. Listen, is there someone here today, some believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are so forgetting the Lordship of Christ that you think there's some little area of life that you can toy with as if it is outside the Lordship of Christ and still be his disciple? What a foolish, half-hearted, wrong-headed, wrong-hearted way to think. We leave everything and we follow him. And the Christian life daily is a life of faith and repentance, faith and repentance, and leaving again those things that would lay claim upon our hearts. And once again, putting them in the hands of the one who already holds them after all, and that is your Savior. Henry Martin put it well, I have rightly no other business each day but to do God's work as a servant, constantly regarding his pleasure. May I have grace to live above every human motive simply with God and to God, and that should be the aspiration of every believer's heart here today. You and I have rightly no other business each day but to do God's work as a servant, constantly regarding his pleasure. May you and I have grace to live above every human motive simply with God and to God. Will you return to verse 8 with me for a few moments? Jesus has told them to cast their nets. They've caught this great, wondrous catch of fish. Peter is concerned only with who Jesus is now in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. 
Let's dwell on that for a few moments as we bring things to a close. Christian, do you have a yearning in your heart to be a consistent and effective disciple of Jesus? I ask you again, do you have a consistent yearning in your heart to be an effective disciple of Jesus? Here's the secret. It starts and ends with the attitude of heart found in verse 8. To be an effective disciple of Jesus starts and ends with humility. Peter felt his unworthiness deeply in view of the holiness of the Lord, and he pours contempt on all his pride. He felt within his soul the contrast between himself and God's majesty as seen in the incarnate Christ. A recognition of something of who Christ is humbled Peter into the very dust, and it should us as well. Am I, are you, amazed in his presence? Are you dazzled? by his greatness? Are you humbled by his glory and by his love? Is this your attitude? Let me grow down and let him in my heart, in my mind, and my actions grow up. Every person, every person who has ever been eminently useful in God's kingdom has had this kind of developing heart. Everyone. Now, of course, I'm focused on ministers and on pastor theologians, and the list is encouraging to me as I think about Calvin or McShane. Or, but it's also true of the mother that influences her children for Christ, of the husband who loves his wife, of the employer whose example impresses his employees with his Christ-likeness, not perfection, but an attitude that points others to the perfect and all-sufficient Savior. So you see, the prayer of verse 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. If you'll understand my meaning, the prayer is actually a prayer for its opposite. I feel in my soul, and I'm tempted to pray, Depart from me. But actually I'm saying, I feel my need of you, Jesus. I'm not worthy of you, Jesus. But do not leave me. Stay with me. Save me. Keep me. Walk with me. Fellowship with me. Though I really do know and feel that I am totally unworthy of you, I am not worthy of your fellowship, but I cannot do without your fellowship. Now that, I say, is the way to be an effective disciple. To cultivate that attitude in your morning devotions. To remember that as you live life through the day. It will be so totally different from the world around you, I guarantee it will be so totally different than the world around you, that people will say there's something different about that person. That person has been with God. So do you want to be an effective disciple? Then humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and put the crown on the head to whom the crown belongs. Let us stop trying to take the crown away from Jesus and put it on our own heads.
and put it where it belongs in our hearts, on the head of our Master and King, Jesus Christ. And as the text points to evangelism, it is this attitude that is the first prerequisite to real biblical evangelism. To engage in God-centered evangelism, we must be God-centered. When we're not God-centered, everything begins to unravel. Our worship unravels, becomes man-centered. Our theology is no longer God-centered. Our lives are not God-centered. Our homes are not God-centered. Our marriages are not God-centered. And let me tell you, you're just not big enough to be the center of the universe. And I'm not. But Jesus is such a person that the entire universe of your life should revolve around him. And so as the text points to evangelism, it is this attitude that is the first prerequisite to engage in God-centered evangelism. We must be a God-centered church and God-centered people. Again, Geldenheis. So the message comes to the church to launch out into the deep and there to cast the net of the gospel. In spite of all failures in the past, the church of Christ must again gather in souls for his kingdom and must do this not merely in the shallow waters, but in the deep water, not only in the vicinity of settled ecclesiastical life, but also among the great masses of people where the need is so great. When the church is obedient to this, men will be caught or work will bear fruit. Do you believe this? That great missionary Henry Martin who burned himself out for Christ at about age 30. He said the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. Because you see it reflects the heart of God. You know, this was a great miracle. I hope you can imagine it within your minds. Cast your nets. The the boats are about to sink because there's so many fish. Some of you men wish, don't you? (laughs) It's a great miracle. But the greater miracle, perhaps the greatest miracle in the text, is not so many fish being caught it's that Jesus caught Peter sinful Peter self-trusting Peter the greater miracle will be that Peter goes out and casts the gospel net and would catch sinners and if you know your heart you're able to say The greatest miracle is that Jesus caught me. Not because I'm a great catch, but because I'm such a great sinner and he's such a great, great savior. And God's people said, amen.